a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 110 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all around the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the podcast platform of your choice and share the podcast with your friends on your favorite social media outlet. The Say the Damn Score podcast is presented by Schold Media Group, the best place online to connect and learn from other young media professionals. Grow your career through their engaging content, demo reel critique services, job placement programs, and much more. Find them at SholdMediaGroup.com. That's S-H-O-L-D MediaGroup.com. And I'm here today again in the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota. And I've experienced a new first in the sportscasting industry since the last podcast was released. And that first was wrestling play-by-play. I did wrestling for Lakeville North High School, and it was certainly a unique experience. It was a streaming broadcast, so there was visuals, so it was more of a TV-style call, which is ideal because I know next to nothing about wrestling, and information on high school wrestlers is scarce to say the least. So while I tried to do all the prep I could for the broadcasts, I went into all three duels that I did feeling like I just didn't have as many arrows in my metaphorical quiver as I'm accustomed to having. And the first broadcast I had was a double duel, back-to-back duels for Lakeville North against area metro teams, and it was not good. (laughs) Let's just say that. I had done my due diligence, and I had the projected order of wrestlers and matchups that were supposed to go against each other, but both teams made wholesale changes to their lineups and who was in what weight classes, and the in-stadium announcer wasn't announcing the names, so we had no idea who was in what matchups because they had moved so much stuff around, and if you're in wrestling and you don't know what the people look like, by their face or body type, there's no numbers on the singlets. There's no way to identify them. So we had some rough matches. The only thing that saved the broadcast from being an abject failure instead of just mostly a failure was the fact that I had a great analyst who both knew the sport and filled in for my lack of knowledge, and he also knew most of the kids. So usually we were able to figure out after... I don't know, 10 to 20 seconds who the person was once they got turned in the right direction. But after that first rough outing, I had a chance to redeem myself about a week later, and it went much better. I made an emphasis to ask both coaches, what switches might you make? And the PA guy was actually announcing the matchups before each wrestler went onto the mat. So it was... 
easier that way. I was more prepared after learning what I needed to know. And it also helped that that PA announcer was confirming the information that I had. It still wasn't great. I don't have any plans of pursuing that sport farther up the sportscasting ladder. But it was an opportunity to leave my comfort zone. And you've heard me talk about this before or write about this before. That's something I believe in. I think every time you do that, it helps to make you a better overall broadcaster. So that was my wrestling experience. I'm sure we'll do it again next year and it'll be a little bit better next year than it was this year. But I am done for the time being until that point with wrestling. Enough about me. We have a great guest lined up for you today as we approach opening day of baseball season. We are having a blizzard here today as this introduction is being recorded, but spring is not that far away, which means this week's guest is a baseball guy. One of the two voices of the Tampa Bay Rays on the radio, Dave Wills. And Dave, welcome to the show, and thanks for giving us a little bit of your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And I always like to start with the moment in your life when you knew you wanted to get into sports broadcasting. And I couldn't find a specific story uh, from you. It looked like it developed over time, and maybe you weren't one of those people who knew from a really young age. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong, or what is your story? No, you know, I, th I think you're right. I mean, I think Andy and I have talked about this a couple of times on the air. Andy at about nine years old, said that uh, it kind of hit him while he was walking through the concourse of uh, the old Baltimore Memorial Stadium and uh, heard their broadcasters, uh, you know, talking and thought that'd be kind of intriguing and something fun to do. At nine years old, I still thought I was going to be, uh, you know, the next uh, Britt Burns or, uh, you know, a pitcher for the Chicago White Sox growing up on the south side in the south suburbs of Chicago and being a White Sox fan. I still thought I was going to be able to play the game and play the game through high school and play the game through college. But, uh, you know, it was somewhere between high school and college when you realize that about an 80-mile-an-hour fastball probably isn't going to cut it at the big league level. And uh, you start thinking about uh, some of your other options. And, uh, you know, I had been intrigued in watching my dad when he used to do the public address at our Little League games and uh, at my brother's Little League games. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a cool thing to be able to do, talk, watch a baseball game and talk about it. And then obviously – as a young kid growing up in Chicago, uh, when Harry was a White Sox announcer, there was nobody who was having more fun at the ballpark than Harry Carey. And uh, also maybe nobody who was having uh, less fun at the ballpark when his team was losing. So I, I loved listening to Harry, loved listening to Jimmy Pearsall when he was teamed up with him as well. And I think, uh, you know, that started giving me an idea of, hey, this might be working for a living, uh, become a broadcaster and be able to talk and watch baseball and get paid for it. So it kind of evolved, as you said. I mean, uh, I joked that, uh, when I was making pizzas at a place called Barnaby's and uh, people would order at the counter and then I would, you know, announce over the microphone, pizza pickup number 34, your pizza's ready. Pizza pickup number 34. Uh, I joked that that's where I got my broadcasting start from. And then when I was at Taco Bell, kind of doing the same thing in the drive-thru, having a little fun with the microphone at that particular time too. But uh, it just, it did evolve. I, I loved playing the game, but uh, now this is a different way. This was a different way to stay involved in the game. I coached for a little while. But uh, ever since moving into the broadcast booth, uh, some just got a little note about it. Uh, almost 30 years ago when I helped get the Kane County Cougars started, I've never lost a game. And uh, it's been a lot more fun and a lot more relaxing in the broadcast booth than it was as a coach or as a pitcher. Interesting. You mentioned having fun on in the Taco Bell microphone as you're doing uh, working a part-time job 
at the drive-thru. Have you ever had your voice recognized the other way around when you're ordering something from a drive-thru? Uh, I, I have, and, uh, you know, I've, I've had it happen, too, when I've been sitting at a bar now recently, here lately, uh, you know, about uh, seven or eight years ago, maybe even more than that now, about 10 years ago, and I was out here in Tampa, and uh, it was after a tough loss, and I was at a, a local uh, watering hole uh, having a couple of pops on the way home, and uh, I was just uh, talking with the owner, and she was really about the only one who knew who I was and maybe one of her bartenders, so it was kind of nice to go in there sometimes. Uh, especially after a tough loss and nobody would uh, really bother you so much. And it was funny, ordered a, a Bud Light at that particular time. And the next thing you know, the guy sitting next to me looks at me and goes, I know you. I mean, I don't know you, but I know you. You're the radio voice of the Tampa Bay Rays. You're Dave Wills. And uh, ended up having a nice conversation with him. And now I've kind of become friendly with the guy. I've known him uh, for those 10 years now. So it is kind of funny when that happens. It's also one of the nice things about being the radio broadcaster, though, too. You can kind of still fly under the radar. Uh, you know, it seems like whenever you do do any kind of a TV appearance, more and more people do uh, see you and start to put the voice to the face. But uh, uh, it, it does happen on occasion. It, it's, uh, you know, humbling and uh, nice to know that there are people out there listening, uh, listening to race baseball on the radio here in Tampa Bay. How did you decide to go to Elmhurst College? It looks like it's in a Chicago suburb. Um, from all I can tell, not a lot of broadcast tradition and probably makes sense since you didn't really know you wanted to go into broadcasting until you were there. But what was the decision-making? I always find it interesting to find out how people chose their college as opposed to going to Northwestern, which is also in your backyard Mm -hmm. and a great journalism school. Well, I mean, Elmhurst College is quite honestly uh, one of the few schools that uh, took a flyer at me. Uh, uh, I had my next-door neighbors. Both were going to school there uh, where I grew up in Oak Lawn and uh, it, it was known at the time as a very, very good uh, nursing and uh, business school. Uh, it did have uh, a couple of people who uh, did make it on uh, the big stage as far as broadcasting locally. Uh, Terry Hemmert's a longtime uh, disc jockey in the Chicagoland area. She was a, uh, a morning drive person who uh, was always in the top five or six people ratings-wise and, and is a Chicago Radio Hall of Famer, I believe. And, you know, and then there's a couple other guys who work behind the scenes, but Really, Elmhurst College was uh, uh, was close, but it wasn't so close that I could live on campus. I was looking for a little bit of a smaller school. I just uh, uh, my high school had over three thousand people in the grad uh, in the school and over seven hundred people in the graduating class, and so I didn't want to really go to a big big school where I get kind of lost in the shuffle. I thought I needed maybe a little more uh, closer to one on one teaching. I was uh, just a you know one of those students that was an average student. That probably should have been a heck of a lot better than I was, but uh, was distracted by many, many things, including uh, baseball and basketball and watching sports and, and girls. And so my grade point average probably wasn't what it needed to be to get me into some of the other schools. And quite honestly, too, the first school I wanted to go to, Eastern Illinois University, where I was uh, I was the sports editor of the high school newspaper. I was going to continue writing at Eastern Illinois, uh, where I'd gone to a, uh, a summertime, uh, you know, symposium and and, and, uh, conference and did some nice things down there and loved the campus. But the only way to get onto that uh, campus the next year was going to be to go to school in the summer. And I refused to go to school in the summer. So Elmhurst College was uh, the next best bet. And, uh, you know, just went there to be a student. And the next thing you know, freshman year, I ended up playing basketball. And then sophomore, junior and senior year, I ended up playing baseball. And it really was a difference maker and a crossroads in my life. Uh, Elmhurst College, I I owe a lot. Now, because of the time I spent 
at that school. Your first break that I could find into the sportscasting business, at least a little bit, was working for Sportsphone and talking to people throughout uh, the years of doing this podcast. There's quite a few people all in about the same age group who got a good start into the business on Sportsphone. Explain what that is and how you ended up working for them. All right, Sportsphone is the number uh, back in the day that you used to call. It was 976-1313, and the announcers would record a one-minute sportscast that, you know, during the day might just include what you would hear on the radio in a one- or two-minute sportscast, uh, maybe a quick uh, clip from, you know, at that particular time for me in Chicago. It might have been of Walter Payton or, uh, you know, a, a member of the White Sox or Ryan Sandberg of the Cubs or what have you, but uh, – uh, you know, it, it really was that during the day you were giving regular sportscasts. And then at night and on the weekends, you were trying to cram as many sports scores in there as possible, because quite honestly, uh, we were the haven for the folks who uh, had maybe a little bit of uh, money on the game. So uh, I was hired back in the, I believe it was the summer of about 1985. And uh, they were expanding uh, the Chicago office. They were also going to start adding, you know, San Jose, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego uh, sports phones. And they were going to broadcast them out of the Chicago office. So I got hired on a part-time basis to do, uh, you know, two or three days a week, uh, do some updates for the San Francisco line, for the San Jose line, on occasion maybe the L.A. or San Diego line. And then about two or three weeks into it, uh, they were looking to start hiring people full-time. And fortunately, I was uh, one of the guys they wanted to hire full-time. So I had a decision to make. I was uh, still a couple of years away from graduating from uh, college. I was playing baseball at Elmhurst College at the time. but I felt that it was an opportunity too good to pass up. So uh, ended up uh, doing that full-time while going to school full-time and playing baseball. And I know it was a lot of juggling at the time, but it, it definitely did open the door to where I wanted to go because uh, the guy who was the boss at the time, Chris Madsen, went on to become the uh, play-by-play announcer of the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. Uh, Brian Davis it was a guy who had spent some time there. He did some uh, things, I think, later on with uh, Seattle and Oklahoma City in the NBA. Brian Wheeler was a roommate of mine for a year. He was the longtime voice of the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, Jeff Joniak was a guy that I worked with uh, very, very closely. He's now the voice of the Chicago Bears. So it was really a full ground for young broadcasters at that particular time. And I'm sure I'm leaving a few other guys out. But uh, in that Chicago office alone, we had a lot of guys who moved on. And uh, it really was a, an opportunity to, uh, you know, again, hone your craft. We covered events, too. Uh, we would cover games, uh, go down and, uh, you know, uh, chop up tape and feed uh, different uh, venues the interviews and then I also got an opportunity to cover the uh, Super Bowl in San Diego between the Denver Broncos and the Washington Redskins for 10 days and uh, it was an opportunity and a, a, an experience that I'll never forget so I did a lot of growing in those uh, three or four years I did work for sports phone and once again probably wouldn't be where I'm at uh, if it hadn't been for that particular time uh, working there. Talking to some of the other people who were involved with sports phone Finding information, you couldn't just get online and look things up. So every now and then, obviously you try not to, but sometimes you report a score wrong or get it told backwards, and they would get angry calls from potential uh, the betters that you were talking about, the people that were looking for that information to find if they had won or lost their bets. Do you have any stories like that? No, you know what I, I, you know, obviously we were always very, very careful. Uh, you know, I, 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 I was the guy who did a lot of the Saturday and Sunday broadcasts. So, you know, you would find an angry guy every once in a while. I mean, it tried to be perfect. 
you had uh, 60 seconds to maybe get 22, 23 scores. And, and uh, you know, you get the occasional complaint that you just talk too fast and they've missed it. Uh, I think fortunately for the most part, while I worked there, it was just a regular phone call. I think toward the end is when they started to charge you uh, 25 to 50 cents per call. So I can understand why people would be upset. But uh, I think for the most part, uh, I was pretty fortunate that, uh, that I, you know, I wouldn't say I got them always right, but uh, I think I got them right 95, 99% of the time. And uh, the only thing that I ever got affected was, you know, you did start uh, hanging around, uh, you know, form your, your guys in there and you got bored and you maybe on occasion decided to put a couple bucks down on a game yourself to make it a little more interesting. And uh, when you're not making a lot of money and you're in the red for a couple hundred bucks, uh, you better get it right the next couple of times. So that, that's really only my uh, scary time of being a broadcaster uh, for, for sports phone. I think, you know, that's one of the things that Chris Matson uh, and, and, you know, even you go back Ryan Wheeler and Chris Bowden, who's been a longtime Chicago guy, uh, devotion to accuracy. Uh, speed is one thing. And I was able to, you know, again, get a lot of scores out of that at a particular time in a short period of time. But we knew the importance of being accurate with the score because we knew there was a pretty good chance that the guy on the other end uh, had some uh, had some money on it. And uh, it was it was key for us to get it right. You know, what used to crack me up, uh, Logan, was that we'd give a score like really early in the game. And uh, we'd get an update from our friends in New York or Detroit who would say, all right, well, we got an update here. It's uh, the New York Knicks three and the uh, New Jersey Nets two. And they'd want us to go ahead and put that up on the air. There was a lot of time left in that basketball game. You mentioned you were roommates with Brian Wheeler, and I didn't find that doing my research. That's a little bit interesting. I'm assuming it was both when you were working for Sports Phone, like you said, on your way up. What? How were you guys able to help each other? And could you kind of sense that both of you guys were going to be successful down the road? Or were you just looking at a pipe dream at that point? Well, I was still, I was the guy kind of, I think we both were. I mean, Brian was a few years older than me. I think he's a handful of years older than me. And, uh, you know, Brian had already been uh, graduated from college. He was already in a management position kind of with uh, sports fund at that particular time. And at that time too, he was doing some play-by-play for the uh, Loyola Ramblers who uh, in the mid eighties actually made it to what the sweet 16, I think that particular year with Alfred Hughes. So uh, Brian was a little further along where I wanted to be uh, and where I wanted to go, but, you know, in, in watching Brian and, and the way he prepared for games and the way he prepared for work, his professionalism uh, was uh, was was tremendous. And you know, it was nice to have a guy around that you could uh, bounce a few things off, but also at the same time see what needed to be done in order to get to that next level. And uh, Brian was, uh, I, and I don't know if I'd go so far as to say a mentor, but he was definitely a, kind of like an older brother type that I just looked at and said, "All right, well, Brian's doing this, doing that, and and also uh, you know doing this." And that's kind of where I want to go. And yet he still wants to go further along. And at that particular time, I remember his dream job was uh, to be, maybe be the Los Angeles Lakers play-by-play guy, which at the particular time was being held by the legendary Chick Hearn. But, uh, you know, Brian ultimately uh, headed out west and uh, got a couple of part-time gigs, did some pregame postgame and some part-time play-by-play, and then landed that job with the uh, the Portland Trailblazers. And, again, just knowing what his professionalism his preparedness and all that stuff uh, that I watched firsthand for the year that we were roommates. Lou Canales was also a roommate of ours. I mean, it was a pretty good uh, uh, trio of guys who uh, made in this broadcasting biz. Lou's a longtime sports anchor in Chicago on uh, the Fox 32 affiliate there. So uh, between the three of us, uh, there might have been something in the water in that uh, apartment for a few years because we've both done, uh, we've all three of us done some uh, nice things in the broadcasting biz, but 
bouncing things off of each other. But again, watching Brian from uh, uh, close in there for that uh, that year, especially that we lived together, his preparedness and uh, the way he, uh, you know, his professionalism, I would hope, and I think it did, uh, rub off on me. There's no doubt. Your first big break came in 1991 when you got the job for the Kane County Cougars and were their first ever radio voice, if I read that correctly. Was it their first exist? Right first year of existence as a team it was as a matter of fact i was just on uh twitter a couple of moments ago and i saw them they're getting ready for their 30th anniversary season and uh first of all a i don't really feel that old and b it doesn't feel like it was 30 years ago that we were working out of a uh, uh, uh an old house that was uh, in beyond right field of the the ballpark that they built out there in uh, geneva illinois but uh, it was a break for me i was the head baseball coach at the University of Chicago in 1990 at uh, 25 years old and, and really uh, liked it. Uh, you know, I, I got named the interim coach about a month before the season started. Uh, we did a lot of nice things. There were some things that I look back on that I wish I could have maybe changed a little bit, but uh, put together a 15-win season, which at the time was one of the most wins they've had in several years. We uh, swept the doubleheader from St. Joseph's, which was a very good Division II school. We played toe-to-toe with some Division I schools like Notre Dame. Uh, a lot of nice things and uh, was really, really uh, anticipating or hoping that maybe I could stay on as a coach. So uh, toward the end of the year, uh, they had mentioned that if I was going to do that, I'd probably have to go back and get my master's, which uh, was something that I wasn't really too uh, enthused about because I figured it took me enough just to get my bachelor degrees, much less now I got to go back and get a, a master's degree to be a, uh, you know, a member of the staff at the University of Chicago, which I always joked I was the second dumbest guy on that campus when I was there. I never did find the dumbest guy, so maybe it was me. But uh, I called my old pitching coach, Mike Young, who was a uh, manager at the time in the Baltimore Orioles organization in Wausau, Wisconsin. And I said, hey, Mike, is there any chance you'd be a reference on my resume uh, here to stay in coaching at the University of Chicago? And he said no. And I thought, well, I I thought we were buddies. I mean, I thought, you know, I did everything you asked me to do when I was cooking for you. And he said, but that has nothing to do with our friendship or what, you know, you do baseball wise. He just said, I think you got to get back into broadcasting. And so he was the manager of the team in Wausau, Wisconsin, that was being moved to Geneva, Illinois the next year. And he told me to send him a tape of a game that I did. And uh, he passed it on to the owners, you know, and, uh, I really kind of wondered at the time, how does a guy who's from, you know, working in Wausau, Wisconsin during the summer and lives in Australia during the winter know about a job opening in Chicagoland? But it turned out that he uh, did know that the team was moving to Kane County the next year. And so he passed the tape along to the ownership group. Ownership group, uh, I met with one of them one time over the summer. They were very, very intrigued about it. And then they said, well, we're going to leave it up to our GM after we name him and I think I had three interviews with uh, Bill Larson to finally get the gig with uh, the the Cougars. And in mid-December, early December, started working for the Kane County Cougars. And my first broadcast was uh, April of that year, 1991, I should say, uh, in South Bend against the White Sox affiliate. And uh, it was the beginning of uh, a uh, life-changing situation for me. I had a unique experience covering a small college in South Dakota that was starting a football program for the first time. So I was the only, I was the first football voice of this program. And I know there was a lot of unique aspects of doing that. A, just watching the coaches, the administration, and the athletes figuring out how to have a football team. 
but also being the only voice that anyone has ever known as part of the program. Do you have any thoughts or takes on what it was like being the first voice of a team? Well, I mean, you know, sometimes I joke around, it's better, it's better to be first than good. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing is with a, you know, the minor league baseball team, you're, you're doing everything. So when, when I first got hired uh, by the Cougars, uh, you know, Bill Larson, our general manager at the time said, all right, you're going to be probably about uh, 70% sales. You're going to be about uh, 10% uh, public relations and communications, helping us get the, the word out. And then maybe another 15 or 20% marketing uh, to, to help us with advertising. And then you might be able to mix you into a few games on the radio. And at that particular time, you know, a few games on the radio is going to be better than nothing. So that's why I agreed to it. And so, uh, you know, I'm doing some sales. I've never done sales before. I did recruiting when I was at, uh, you know, an, an assistant baseball coach at uh, Elmhurst College and then obviously as the head coach for the short time at the University of Chicago. So I thought, well, if I could sell people uh, the, the chance to, that, you know, they want to come to Elmhurst College and pay $10,000 a year to play baseball, I guess I can sell minor league baseball. But it was kind of intriguing, too, because nobody really knew in the a major metropolitan area what minor league baseball was. We would go to uh, the Shutter Shack, the local camera store, to try to get uh, a fence sign and maybe a, 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 an ad in the uh, program sold, and they would ask if their 10-year-old son would be able to play for the Cougars. And they did not know what minor league baseball was about. So we did a lot of uh, teaching what minor league baseball was and, and how they were – on the lowest rungs of, at that particular time, the Baltimore Orioles organization, and tried to explain to them what minor league baseball was. We were the first, you know, team, minor league team, to really come into a major metropolitan area. We were 30 miles outside of Chicago. Uh, you know, it was a, a situation where we had a pretty uh, decent population around us as opposed to some of the smaller teams like Waterloo or, uh, you know, Cedar, Cedar Rapids or some of the other small, you know, teams that were in the Midwest League. And, there was a lot of newness to it that people didn't know. And so uh, we had a 3,600-seat stadium. Our first year, we averaged about 4,200 fans a game. Then we put 4,800 seats in for the next year. We averaged uh, a little bit over uh, 5,000 fans a game. And then we put 5,200 seats in, or 5,600 seats in, and started averaging better than 6,000. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of things going on. And then about halfway through, or actually about uh, halfway through the month of February, of that 1991 uh, year before we even started, I was sitting in Bill Larson's office, our general manager, and he was on the phone with uh, another prospective broadcaster. And he was telling this individual actually, actually went on and uh, has now been a long time triple uh, a voice uh, said, well, yeah, we have decided who our play by play guy is and it's going to be Dave Wills. <laughs> you know, that was as much as I've known to, to this day. I don't think he ever heard my demo tape or anything. Uh, but uh, I just happened to be the right guy at the right time. And then, like I said, took a flyer on the possibility of doing just some games uh, to, to also, in addition, do some sales and PR and marketing. And uh, it was an experience that uh, you'll never forget. I mean, uh, you know, you're, you're shoveling snow, you're making hot dogs, you're pulling the tarp, you're cutting the grass, you're pulling weeds, you're painting, you're doing whatever, you're hanging fence signs. Uh, a lot of times I thought to myself, I wonder if Harry Carey did this back in the day. And I doubt he did, but uh it was an experience that uh, got me to where I am today, and it was a tremendous experience. Uh, I have lifelong friends that uh, I still stay in touch with that I worked with at Kane County, and even some of the fans that uh, I sold their first season tickets to. 
have uh, stayed in touch over the years. So it's uh, it's something that uh, I have a lot of fondness for what's happened and what is still happening out there in Kane County. I'm not entirely sure on the timeline for this next question, but I think it was just before you took that position. And I read that you had a little bit of a turning point where you were offered a job to start making some real money and sell some insurance for a friend and sounded like you seriously thought about it for a little bit and ended up saying, you know what, I don't want to do that. I want to continue to pursue broadcasting. How tempting was it to take the easy way out, so to speak? Uh, it was very tempting because, you know, like I said, I, I graduated, uh, you know, I had already been graduated for a couple of years. And, you know, you're looking at all your buddies, especially my buddies who were graduates of the University of Illinois and some of the bigger schools and are already making a lot of money. And uh, here I am kind of piecemealing a few things together and uh, still keeping an eye on what I would love to do, but wondering if I'm going to be able to get there. And, uh, you know, I, I coached baseball, uh, a Pony League team, my younger brother, youngest brother was on that team. And uh, the guy I coached with uh, had his own insurance agency. And he said, hey, I can hook you up with a big company here and blah, 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 blah. And I went in and I took a couple of tests, passed the tests. And next thing you know, the guy's telling me this is how much money you could make uh, at the end of this year so much money you can make in two or three years. And I remember at the particular time when, you know, I had trouble rubbing mama dollar and papa dollar next to each other, uh, thinking to myself how nice it would be to finally have some money. But I do remember that drive home thinking to myself, you know what, I don't want to be 40 years old and start to think, what if, what if I would have, uh, you know, hung it out just a couple more years and, uh, you know, could have been a broadcaster, could have been a play-by-play guy. And, uh, you know, it was one of those um, really, really tough moments. I mean, you've got, you know, some people bearing down and you're saying you got you to make money. You got to, you know, get money. You got to pay off your college tuition bills. But at the same time, I still had a dream. And uh, you know, I, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Uh, like I said, uh, by the time I was 30, I was already working for the Chicago White Sox and ESPN 1000. By the time I turned 40, I got the, King, uh, the uh, job here with the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. So, uh, I was very, very fortunate. It's uh, it's tough to pass up, but it also is something that when you when you really have a feel for what you want to do, and uh, you, you think that uh, you have the talent to get it done, uh, keep on putting your head down and trying to drive through, and that's exactly what I did. And as you mentioned, over the time being in a major metro area like Chicago, you picked up pre-post opportunities with the Chicago White Sox. You did University of Illinois Chicago men's basketball and even worked for Notre Dame a little bit in South Bend. How were you able to work yourself into those positions by being in the market? Because a little bit of background on me that you probably don't know, mm-hmm. uh, I left South Dakota to move to Minneapolis to be in a big market. So I'm trying to do the same thing. And I'm just curious on what you were able to do to successfully get uh, some of those positions, besides being uh, very talented, obviously. Well, I mean, first of all, Kane County was uh, the, the genesis of it all. I mean, you know, working for the Cougars, doing play-by-play, 140 games, and uh, getting to be able to do that. And then Bill Melton was a guy that my girlfriend at the time, now she's my wife for the last 26 years, but she was a huge Bill Melton fan. And at the end of our first season in 1991, uh, we had an old-timer softball game at our ballpark. And so I got to the ballpark, and I wanted to get down there and meet Bill real quick, and I was trying to set up a meeting so that my wife, who was a, you know, like I said, a ginormous Bill Melton fan, could, or, you know, she was my girlfriend at the time, could finally meet him. And so I got to the ballpark early, met Bill, and I said, "Hey, Bill, would you uh, do me a favor when my girlfriend gets here? Would you take a picture with her?" 
Now, she's a big fan of yours, blah, 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 blah. And he was very nice, took a picture with her. And then the next year, or that offseason, I was at the uh, Chicago Pitch and Hit Club dinner representing the Cougars, and Bill Melton was there representing the White Sox. And I walked up to him again, and I said, hey, Bill, my name's Dave Wills. Met you last year uh, at the uh, King County Cougar game. Hey, if you ever want to come and do some play-by-play with me, here's my card. And, you know, just kind of threw it out there, figuring maybe he'd come out and do some color and just join me. Because in the past year, Jimmy Parasol had come out for a few games with me, and that was just incredible to be able to do some games with Jimmy Parasol, a guy who did games with Harry Carey, who was my idol. Now Jimmy Parasol is sitting next to me doing games, and Jimmy had given me some insight as to how uh, what Harry did and how Harry taught him a few things. And uh, that was that went a long, long way. Jimmy was also very positive in the way that I broadcasted the game. And what he told me was I needed to settle down on the first few innings of games and then kind of build up to it. So having Jimmy Pearsall come by. And then Bill Melton started coming by the next year, mostly unannounced. He would just kind of show up, and next thing you know, he's doing games with me. And Bill had been working as an ambassador with the Chicago White Sox as well. So we had done that for a couple of years. Uh, work in the Cougar games together. And like I said, we were a very pretty good populated area. Our radio station was 95.5 FM, I think, or 95.9 FM. And, you know, it reached almost 3 million people. And how many minor league teams have radio stations that reach 3 million people? So I would apply for big league jobs and I'd get back letters from the uh, big league uh, broadcast corner saying, oh, you're only doing A ball right now. Maybe you should think about doing double A. Triple A, and then think about the big leagues. And I would counter with how many double A AA or triple A broadcasts even have two or three million people uh, in their listening audience. So, long story short, doing some games with Belty, uh, a buddy of mine had been working at the WMAQ, which at the time had been the White Sox affiliate, and they needed a new weekend guy uh, because uh, Ken Korak, who had been doing some things, had moved into the radio booth to play by play. And so they needed somebody to do some pregame, postgame. So I was fortunate that the Cougars management allowed me to do their play-by-play Monday through Friday and then allowed me to come and do the White Sox pre- and post-game and some shows on Saturday and Sunday. So I had that agreement my last couple of years, but a lot of it stemmed from the fact that they could hear me do Cougar games. And then at the end of the 95 season, uh, Korak moved on to the Oakland Athletics and they were looking for a new pre-game, post-game and play-by-play guy. And I was lucky that I had kind of had my foot in the door already and by being a broadcaster in Kane County uh, where they could hear me in Chicago, uh, it just allowed me that uh, next step to go to the White Sox right away, which is, you know, again, kind of uh, unheard of uh, a ball guys going even to the big leagues in baseball as a player, much less as a broadcaster. But like I said, the, the market that we were in in Kane County was a big league market in my mind. And it really, really helped me. And then uh, all that other stuff kind of fell into place with UIC uh, it's funny. I went after their play-by-play job for hockey one year and, uh, didn't get it. And the guy who did get it is, uh, still on the market. But, uh, you know, I kind of joke part of the reason why I'm here is because I didn't get that job originally. I did some hockey, then I did basketball. And then, uh, we were the affiliate at Notre Dame. And because I'm a Southside Irish guy, I talked to our front office people and broadcast, uh, program people into doing some things with Notre Dame that they had never done before and created a relationship with them. So uh, it all just kind of worked out. But I think, again, the genesis of it all is being in Kane County and the fact that we had a really good radio station at 95.9 FM that could reach into the city and reach almost 3 million people. This is probably something I should have looked up ahead of time, but I didn't think of it. Has there continued to be a tradition of good broadcasters coming through Kane County? 
Uh, there's another, yeah, there's a couple guys already. I mean, uh, Scott Fransky, who's the play-by-play announcer for the Philadelphia Phillies, came from Kane County. Uh, Patrick Keenis, who uh, had, at the time when I was in Kane County, was in Clinton, then went up to A for a little while, and then after I had left, I think he came back for a bit, and uh, now he's our A Durham announcer. And uh, Jeff Hem, who is uh, uh, the play-by-play announcer for the Cougars for a number of years, is now the uh, play-by-play announcer for the Nashville Sounds. So got a couple of big league guys. you got a couple of guys that uh, are in AAA. And then Joe Brand, who is, I think, now the current play-by-play guy uh, for the Cougars, is also doing some uh, Blackhawks uh, pregame, postgame, and uh, intermission reporting for uh, WGN and also some White Sox pregame and postgame. So it's been a, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's been a nice little uh, job opportunity for people. And, uh, you know, again, uh, I think the, the opportunity to get to the, to the big city was a lot easier when they were on 95.9 FM because it was smack dab in the middle of the dial and, and uh, more and more people could, you know, just heard it going down the highways in Chicago and flipping channels. But, uh, Recently, it's, it still stays. A, I think it's a very, very good spot. It's, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, you're, you're in a major metropolitan area, and if you can get the job done there, there's a chance that somebody who's working in a big spot in a big radio station can help you out. So it, it's been a little, it's been a decent uh, chain of guys being able to make it from that spot, no doubt. You've been now the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays. You're going into your 15th season, according to your bio on MLB.com. And reading up and listening up on all the things that went into landing there, I thought the most interesting part is that you weren't sure you wanted that job right away when you started being considered for it. How long did it take for that viewpoint to change? Well, I, you know, again, just I think it's our 16th season, too, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I'm it just not, hasn't been updated yet. Yeah. Yeah, but... Uh, you know, it's uh, one of those things where when it, when it was going on uh, in, in 2004, uh, again, the White Sox were, I think, a team at that particular time that I thought was on the upswing. Uh, I was doing the pregame, postgame, and some play-by-play for them. Uh, at, the pre- at that time, too, I was doing UIC play-by-play for college basketball. and They had a very, very good team that had been to the NCAA tournament a couple of different times, and I loved, loved doing their games. I, had, you know, again, started a nice relationship with the Notre Dame athletic director at the time, Kevin White, we were doing a show together. And then that led to doing some pregame postgame stuff for their football and basketball games. And I was also doing a, a, a show in Chicagoland on the uh, local cable uh, television outlet uh, called sports weekly and doing some play by play for that too. So I, I, I carved out a pretty decent niche, you know, to put together five or six jobs to make a real nice living. And we had uh, just uh, taken a, bought a house, it was about uh, a block and a half from my wife's older sister, about three blocks from her younger sister, and less than a mile from her mom. And I know everybody kind of jokes about it, but uh, <laughs> I get along with her family as well as I get along with mine, if not better. And uh, we just we, we gutted the house to the studs. We fixed it all the way back up to where uh, the way we liked it. My brother-in-law's a general contractor, and along the way, every time we were doing something, he'd say, "Dave, are you going to be here for two years? Or are you going to be here for 30? And I said, "Tom, we're not going anywhere. This is everything we want in a house." I want it done so that I don't have to do anything else to it once we move in. And so we, we fixed it all up. We got it all built up, moved in in September. And then about uh, the early part of December of that year, um, I got a call from Mitch Rosen, who a longtime PD in Chicago, who at that time was still kind of dabbling in uh, sports uh, representation. And he said, hey, uh, the 
Tampa Bay Devil Rays are looking for a radio guy and your name keeps popping up. And this was, I think, like December 6th or 7th. And I was in uh, either Durham, North Carolina or Wilmington, North Carolina. We were broadcasting a weekend of basketball games for UIC against Duke and UNC Wilmington. And I told them, I really, I'm going to say, I got to think about it. And so I sat in it for about a week uh, because the Devil Rays were not considered a real good franchise at the time. Um, you know, I, I, I really, really was happy with uh, where I was at as far as, uh, you know, my, my, my jobs. And I kind of sat in it for a week because I wasn't sure I wanted to, you know, relocate. So then after about a week, I started talking it over with a couple of people. I just said to myself, you know what? There are only, only, there are only 30 of these jobs or whatever you want to say in the world. And I have an opportunity to get one. So I, uh, talked things over with a few people, uh, got a taped uh, CD together, sent it off to the, uh, the devil rays and started making some phone calls. And one of my first phone calls was to Kevin white, the athletic director of the, uh, of Notre Dame. And I said, Hey, Kevin, I know you're a pretty connected guy. Is there anybody at, at uh, the Tampa Bay devil rays that, you know, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, who is it? And he goes, the owner. And he also knew a senior VP and a couple other guys. So Kevin was a, a, guy, a guy that helped me out, but it's funny. The story I hear, is that uh, you know Kevin, uh, Rick Rick Vaughn, a longtime PR guy with the uh, Devil Rays and the Rays, said that uh, they had just wrapped up a big meeting where they had finalized the last ten people that they wanted to interview after hearing every almost three hundred tapes. And he said he was in a conference room when the mail guy came by and said, "I think this might be for you." And he said, out of the kindness of his heart, he thought, "You know what? Well, this guy sent it in. I might as well listen to it." Popped the CD in, started listening to it. It was my CD. And he called back some of the people from his uh, group and said, hey, I know we've picked our final 10, but I think this guy needs to be in it. And it turned out that I was the 11th of the final 10 and then had the interview process and, and did all that. And next thing you know, on uh, February 1st, what, a couple of days from now, uh, the uh, the Rays called me up at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, and told me that uh, they wanted to hire me as their play-by-play announcer. And for a little while during the interview process, you actually hid that from your wife and your family, correct? I did. Uh, you know, I was hired, uh, and, you know, it all started in, in, I guess, so when I sent it in December. And then right before Christmas, on December 23rd, there was a phone call that came that said, uh, you know, they wanted to get uh, some more information and salary requirements and blah, 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 blah. And my daughter at the time, about eight or nine years old, checked the messages. He said, Hey dad, um, you know, Sylvia from the Tampa Rays double bays, uh, called and you know, she wants you to do this. And I'm like, Michelle, please do not tell your mother. And so made it through the Christmas holiday without telling her, but, uh, right around January 1st, I did mention it to her that, uh, I was up for the job. And then in mid January, I went out for the interview, but then it was quiet for about a week or 10 days after that and thought, well, maybe I didn't get it. Well, like I said, on that particular day, about 10 o'clock in the morning, I got the phone call that said uh, they wanted to hire me. And so I got in my car without calling her, went down to my uh, old, uh, well, I call it old now, but a sponsor of mine sold all kinds of uh, sports memorabilia and paraphernalia. And I went into the, the store and I said, hey, do you have a double race hat and a double race jacket? And they were like, no way. <laughs> I said, yeah, I got the gig. And they did. And so I got the hat and the jacket got back in my car, drove to my wife's office, and I came walking into her office, and uh, she was getting ready to sit down for lunch, and her brother-in-law, who was her, uh, who owned the office, that uh, was a computer company, 
looked at me and said, wow, nice jacket. And my wife looked at me and said, you're kind of presumptuous, aren't you? And I said, uh, actually, I'm not. They just called and gave me the job. And uh, <laughs> she uh, was shocked, started crying, and uh, had to clock out because she just couldn't work the rest of the day. And, you know, it's tough. Chicagoans are an interesting lot. Uh, a lot of people from Chicago never leave. Uh, they, they stay there, and there's a lot of reasons why, family and jobs and so on and so forth. But, uh, like I said, it was going to be tough for my wife because we would have to leave and um, so it took her a couple of days to kind of, uh, soften up and, and get to the realization that we were going to be moving, but it wasn't long after that, after a couple of uh, trips down to Florida in February and early March, when there was snow on the ground in Chicago and it was 75 and sunny in Florida, that she, uh, start falling in love with the idea that she wasn't going to need a shovel and snowblower anymore. Being a sports broadcaster and balancing family life especially in baseball I imagine where the grind is almost daily as opposed to just a couple times a week is is a tough thing to do Uh, how have you been able to manage it and how much support from your wife and your family how important has that been in your journey so you know it it starts with with your family I mean uh you know when when we were living in Chicago and even at that particular time when I was filling in doing you know play-by-play uh, for the for the White Sox, I would only be gone every other weekend whenever uh, John Rooney needed weekends off. And one weekend it would be out of town, the next one it would still be in Chicago. So my traveling was kind of limited. And even going back to my Kane County days, we didn't really we didn't even get married until after my uh, 1993 season. So by the time 94 and 95 start came back, I was only working with the Cougars then Monday through Friday really. And then when we had my daughter Michelle. Uh, that was toward the end of the 95 season, which was my last year in the minor league. So uh, we had never experienced anything like this. It was most of the time we were like two shifts passing in the night. My wife would work the usual uh, eight to four gig. And then I did about four o'clock. I would really almost literally be waiting in my car for her to drive, you know, pull up into the driveway so I could leave to go and do my, you know, night shift of uh, games or whatever the case may be. And um, we were a lot of times, like I said, two shifts passing in the night. So now, here we are relocating to Tampa, Florida, and, uh, you know, the first season comes and uh, goes, and, and now I come back home, and uh, the sheriff's back in town, and this is the way it is, and this is the way it goes, and it didn't take me long to realize that, you know what, they're doing pretty good without me. Uh, you know, they were, there was a lot of nice things going on here at home. My daughter was getting acclimated to the school, doing well in school. My wife was starting to get acclimated to the area, meeting some new friends, and, uh, I realized about halfway through that off season that, you know what, from now on, I'm just going to merge into traffic. And then four months later, when it's time for baseball season again, I'm just going to merge right back out. They've got everything under control here, which I was fortunate with. Uh, we had a lot of family visit. It's nice to be down in Florida and come down to you know a place where people want to come visit. But uh, I, I got to give all the credit to my wife, Liz, and my daughter, Michelle, uh, because they really did, uh, you know, again, acclimate themselves. To, to me being gone for a long time, uh, you know, 10, 7 to 10, 12 days sometimes at a time. And uh, they just kept the, the machine running, and uh, it's tough. It, it's, you know, we know that the divorce rate is already 50% uh, in, uh, for, for, for everybody, the general population. It's probably even higher than that for a lot of broadcasters and players because you are gone so long. So it takes a strong marriage. It takes a strong woman uh, to be able to hold things together, and I'm fortunate that my wife Liz can do that. You were part of the 2008 team that made the World Series, came up a little bit short for Tampa Bay, but you had a memorable call 
uh, as they beat Boston in the ALCS. And going into that call, how spontaneous was it? How much thought had you put into it beforehand? Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I, I didn't write anything down, I guess would be the number one thing, but you know, it kind of all started in, in game five where, uh, you know, in, in game five, we had the seven, nothing lead. Now remember, even in the seventh inning, you go to the bathroom real quick. And all of a sudden I hear this kind of dim roar is, you know, the, the broadcast, uh, or I should say the, the facilities at Fenway park are back a bit from, uh, the, the field. And I thought, well, that didn't sound good. And so by the time I got back, uh, Grant Belfort had given him a homer and went from seven nothing to like seven to three, and next thing you know it was seven to five, and the next thing you know we lost. And I remember leaving that uh, particular night and, and getting ready to go to our charter bus to fly back home. And it was really one of the cl- the closest I think I've ever been to getting physically ill after a game. I just couldn't believe that we were that close to going to the postseason, going to the World Series, and you start having uh, you know thoughts. Well didn't this happen to the Indians last year against this team? And uh Oh, it's going to happen to us and so on and so forth. But there was something in the back of my mind that thought this isn't supposed to happen to us. And I remember Andy looking at me as we were walking to the bus. And he said, I think that just blew our chance of going to the world series. And I said to myself and I said to him, I said, I don't think that's the way this story is supposed to end. I really, really don't. And so um, that kind of started the, the thought process a little bit, but we get to game six and we lose, and now you start thinking about game seven, and you're thinking, well, anything can happen. Uh, Dustin Pedroia hits a homer in the first inning. We're down one nothing. Nat Garz is on the mound and waiting for him to implode. And next thing you know, we start uh, taking the lead, and we have the three to one lead as we go into the ninth. And all I kept on thinking was, you know, like I said, when I go back to that game five ending, that's not the way that this story was supposed to end. And so um, when the ground ball went to Aki, my only thought process was, if this story does have another chapter to it and the Rays are going to the world series and uh, my Rays win, Rays win, Rays win thing is something that I kind of took from Harry when he used to do Sox win. And then later on, obviously go to Cubs win. But uh, I think, like I said, the, the thought process started a little bit after game five, but after you lose game six, you're not thinking about anything anymore other than to just try and win the game in game seven. All right. Well, there's a couple just, kind of goofy things that I found that aren't necessarily connected with your broadcasting career are very little, but I just want to talk about them because I find them interesting. And I read that you got stuck on an elevator by yourself for quite some time and were live tweeting the entire process. Where were you at? How did this happen? What were your thoughts as this was going on? Uh, you know, we were in Chicago at the Drake hotel, which is a relatively older hotel. And, uh, I was getting ready to bring a bunch of uh, guys from our traveling party to uh, Portillo's. They had never been there, and uh, we were going to meet up. I was going to meet up with Bill Melton as well and a couple other people, and I wanted to make sure, really, that I was going to be you know, there early. I didn't want anybody waiting for us. Uh, Melton's one of those guys. He's a very impatient guy, so if you're five or ten minutes late, he'll just leave. And so um, I had d- decided to get an early start. I get into the elevator, and then it stops, and it's not going anywhere, and I'm trying to get a hold of people in the front office, and I'm talking to some people. And so, um, you know, I'm, I say that I'm not claustrophobic, and I'm fortunate that I probably at that particular time didn't think much about it. But I figured, you know what? <laughs> let's have a little fun with the situation, and let's live tweet and, and keep people posted as to uh, how the conversations are going, who I'm with. Uh, maybe, in a sense, too, in the back of my mind, I thought this would be uh, a chance to somebody would keep me company. <laughs> 
you know, if you will, uh, you know, via tweeting as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to get, trying to just get on the phone and talk to somebody. So just try to have a little fun with the situation. I think that's one of the things I've always tried to do is, uh, I, you know, I try to, I take my job serious, but I don't take me serious and, uh, just had some fun with it and decided to tweet and people had a little fun with it. And, and, and luckily it was only about a 20 minute stay and I still was able to make it to Portillo's on time and had a little something to talk about once we got there and had our hot dogs and our Italian beefs. Did they just get the elevator working properly or did they have to get you out or yeah, bring you out in did. some other, t- no, some they, other way? I think they, yeah, they were able to finally just get the, the elevator to come down. I think they did have to pry the door open a little bit, but it wasn't one of those things where they had to you know, lift me up through the ceiling or I had to crawl through a four foot hole or anything like that. So uh, it just took a little while to kind of get it to, I think almost manually lower it uh, to where they had to then pry the door open and get me out. You're also a member of the Irish American Hall of Fame. Uh, what? How did you find out about that, and <laughs> what does that mean to you? Well, uh, it, it's it's you know a, a guy, Sean Clancy and John Mooney are two guys located uh, you know based out of New York. Sean's a, a longtime uh, uh, bar owner of a tremendous place called Foley's. If you're a baseball person, or even just a sports person. Uh, this bar has over, uh, you know, 3,000 baseballs signed, maybe even closer to 4,000 now. It's got the uh, umpire uniforms, player uniforms, uh, soccer uniforms, different artifacts from different ballparks and stadiums. It's just, a, it's, it's almost a museum within itself. Uh, and it's located right across the street from the Empire State Building on 33rd between 5th and 6th. And uh, when uh, I started going there with my broadcast partner, Andy Freed, in 2006, uh, we just became uh, friendly with the owner. And then, uh, he, at that particular time, was just in the process of starting the Irish American Baseball Hall of Fame. Ben Scully, Tim McCarver, uh, you know, Tug McGraw, a few other, a number of other folks are, were among the lead people that he inducted into it. And just as the years went on, would work with him on trying to get some people uh, that we thought should, be, you know, belonged in it, and would, would work with him and John on a few things. And the next thing you know, a few years ago, he decided to uh, uh, nominate me, and I was fortunate enough to be elected and, uh, and named to it. And, uh, you know, again, being a Southside Irish guy from Chicago, like when I was going to that place and, uh, I saw that he had started the, uh, Irish American baseball hall of fame. Never once did I even think that I'd have a plaque up on the wall at that particular venue. All I wanted to do was have one of those little, uh, you know, little brass name tags at a spot where a stool is on the bar. So that I can say, that's my spot at the bar. Uh, I wasn't looking for a, a plaque on the wall. So, um, just humbled by it. Uh, you know, some of the names that are, that are up there now too. Uh, you know, like I said, with uh, especially when you start talking about Vince Cully or uh, you know Tim McCarver and anybody else who's been involved in the game for a long, long time, it's a, it's an incredible honor and it's always uh, nice to see when I have a tendency to go in there almost every time we're in New York City. It's a great pub, good food, cold beer, uh, and uh, a very very friendly atmosphere. And like I said, if you're a baseball fan or a sports fan, it's a place you definitely should stop by because uh, it's worth the visit. Uh, not only just to see some of the artifacts and check out some of the things that are on, on the wall, but you never know who you're going to run into. Uh, John Am has uh, become a frequent visitor uh, to that place. Umpires are in there almost on a nightly basis during the regular season because you've got guys who are working games either at Yankee Stadium or uh, City Field or even some of the guys who are working the uh, replay, uh, and it's become kind of an umpire bar as well. So it's a great baseball place if you're a baseball fan. I uh, strongly recommend you try and uh, make the visit and check it out.
Foley's, we will send you your bill for that free advertising here uh, forthwith. (laughs) So the way that I do this, I don't usually talk about the research. I think it's boring, but I try to do some research on just about everybody that has, that comes on this show and start out with a basic Google search. And usually that leads to one or two things which branch off into other things, so on, so forth, yada, yada. For you, that was a little different. There's a bunch of other David Wills in various other parts of culture. There's a country singer, a voice actor, yep. someone from the, who had something to do with the Civil War. I didn't read that far into it. Have you mm-hmm. ever been mixed up for any of the other Dave Wills? I have. Uh, well, I, you know, you go back, you talk about the country singer uh, a few years ago when, uh, you know, obviously baseball moved on to XM. It wasn't long thereafter that I got a royalty check for about 16 or 18 bucks. And I thought, well, maybe it's something to do with being on XM. Uh, so I cashed it. And, uh, and then a number of years, a couple of years later, another one for about 30 or 40 cashed it. But then we moved and the checks, I guess, would kept on coming to the, uh, my old address in Orland Park, Illinois. So I uh, didn't know about it. The people who bought my house for whatever reason didn't forward it to us. So it went six, seven, eight years. The next thing you know, they decided to send one of these checks to us. And I think it was for close to $10,000. And at that particular time, I thought to myself, boy, 10 grand is nice, but this can't be for me. And so I think we did the same thing. We Googled it and we found out that there was a, uh, you know, I'd always heard that there was a Bob Wills country singer, but this Dave Wills uh, country singer and writer, uh, which also I think had a song called bar rooms and uh, broomsticks or something, which kind of is funny. It's talks about bars, but, uh, uh, finally said, you know, we called up the uh, company and said, Hey, you're sending the check to the wrong Dave Wills. And we tried to do some, some, uh, investigating ourselves to try and find out where this Dave Wills was in Nashville. So we could start getting the checks and they would keep on sending the checks back to us. And finally, we, we finally talked them into stop sending the checks. So it was for that Dave Wills in Nashville. Now, I've never met the Dave Wills voice actor. I also understand there's a Dave Wills who's a big wrestling aficionado who has a blog and some things he does on the wrestling side. And I've got a cousin named Dave Wills who runs a uh, fresh hops, uh, barley and hops uh, establishment out in Oregon and uh, also sells Christmas trees. So there's a few, uh, there's a few Dave Wills, but the Dave Wills country singer is the closest uh, that I've come to getting mixed up with things. And then obviously, I don't know why it's only a five letter last word, but uh, you know, a lot of Dave Willis's over the uh, last few years and then there was a time too when i was with the white Sox, where i was getting ready for a uh, fantasy camp and had to go get some uh, baseball pants the night or two before i was leaving for tucson arizona and one of the security guards said i was david wells and started asking me how my back was and everything else like that so uh, i didn't know it was that hard to kind of you know with, with just uh, dave wells last name but uh, i guess you can get mixed up on occasion did you ever talk to the country singer about those checks and whether he started getting them or not? I never did. And I really was kind of, like I said, I tried to do some homework, tried to track him down. I uh, could never get an address or a phone number. But, uh, you know, this is a guy, too, that I really would have loved to have talked to because he wrote a couple of songs for Garth Brooks, who was really, like for a lot of people who love country music, uh, way back in the early 90s, was really one of the first country music guys that ever liked. So, uh I would have loved to have had a chance to talk to him, but I'm not getting the checks anymore, so I sure hope he is. <laughs> That's a crazy story. Uh, I like to finish up the show with uh, a couple questions that I ask just about everybody. So 
I like to ask everyone what their broadcast horror stories are, and that's not real horror. It's uh, <laughs> having a horrible bus breakdown or uh, a horrible vantage point, just something highly, highly inconvenient that mortifies you at the moment but is memorable and laughable now. And covering minor league baseball for as long as you did, I imagine you have a couple. You know what? It's funny. Uh, I, I, the only thing I ever had with the Cougars was I was uh, about halfway through the first year because my my home was about 50 minutes uh, away from the, the ballpark where I, I stopped driving to the ballpark to get in the bus and have it go past my house. So I started driving my own car to a lot of the uh, minor, to a lot of the games on the road. And I would have just a you know a nightmare on occasion or a little bad dream thinking that one of these days I'm going to be pulling up to the ballpark thinking that it's a seven o'clock game and it's a one o'clock game and I'm coming at three thirty. Fortunately, that never happened. Now my, my horror story goes back to my days with the White Sox. I think it was about 1997, about the middle part of the season. And I was batting a little, you know, battling a little tickling of the throat and the cough. And, uh, you know, it turns out that it was walking pneumonia and, uh, you know, bronchitis, but I, you know, I refused to go to the doctor. And so I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, we're playing the Red Sox, tight game, and we're down, I think, a couple of runs in the top of the ninth inning, and Albert Bell's up with the bases loaded. And so Albert gets a pitch, and he drives it to center field, and it's going it's back to the wall, and I can't remember who the right fielder at the time was. Back to the wall, and it is a grand slam. And as I'm getting ready to call grand slam, I lose my voice. Grand slam. And I'm hitting the, I'm hitting the cough button. I'm trying to take a drink of water. And it's all just coming out, grand slam, and I can't get it right. So it, I'm, I'm more. You talk. I was mortified because here I am filling in for John Rooney. It's a chance to. You're thinking at the time too. This is a maybe a demo tape, <laughs> extraordinary opportunity, and it's a horrendous call. Now I'm thinking it's going to end up on ESPN Radio. It's going to be all over the place. And it turns out that uh, our radio people back at ESPN 1000. They got a hold of it and they made a promo of it. They said, you know, hey, cut fans, you might have Harry Carey, but we've got Dave Wills. And they made a 60-second promo out of it. And uh, I, I kind of laughed. Obviously, at that particular time, I'm laughing at it, and uh, it cracked me up. But uh, at the time that it happened, uh, I was just absolutely mortified and could not believe <laughs> that my chance at calling a, a – you know, not it wasn't a walk-off grand slam because – it uh, was at the top of the ninth inning, but it was a game-changing grand slam. And uh, I, I lived for those moments and failed miserably. What's it like having your own bobblehead, and how many of them do you own? Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, going back to the, like, talking about that uh, memorabilia store, they had always joked about putting together a bobblehead, but they couldn't find a spring strong enough to keep my head up on it. And uh, uh, that, that was something that you know kind of cracked me up when they finally did put the bobblehead together of Andy and I a few years ago. And, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, it, it kind of does look like me, which is even kind of more crazy, but, uh, it's, it's humbling for lack of a better term. I mean, you know, all of us in baseball fans, we all grew up, uh, with that original bobblehead and we always, you know, bro, how many of those did we break as we got a little bit older? Now you got them. And, uh, this was a talking one too, on top of it, which was absolutely incredible. And, uh, I'm staring at one. I've got one right now in my bar room, and and, and there, that's it. There's about three or four more, I think, that are left from the original stash that are in a box in my garage that uh, on occasion I'll get a request from somebody that says, hey, I don't have one. And I'll say, here you go. And so uh, I, if my mom, it, it was unfortunate because uh, 
I think I, I think when we got it, it was about a year and a half or so after my mom had passed. And uh, all I could say is that my mom had been still alive when uh, we were when I was honored to get a bobblehead. She probably would have had about 500 of them. Uh, but uh, fortunately uh, for the fans, she did not get a hold of those 500. They were able to get them, and it was really just a nice uh, touch by the Rays to honor both Andy and I for our 10th anniversary. And uh, um, it, it's just, it's and like I said, it's kind of kind of weird to see, kind of funny to see, but uh, it's also nice. It's very nice. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to if you're just flipping through the dial on a day off? Wow, uh, you know what? Um, Right offhand, I'm trying to think of some of the guys that uh, I do. I mean, we, we, Andy and I will listen to John and Susan a lot, obviously, because we're, we're, we're trying to keep an eye as to uh, what's going on with the, uh, you know, with, with the Yankees a lot of times. So we listen to them, and they become great friends of ours and uh, are two very, very nice people. Uh, you know, I love Corey up there with the Minnesota Twins. I'll tune into them an awful lot. I mean, I, I'll just, I can't say I got a favorite. I'm just a guy that, you know, again, if I've got an interest in the game, Ken Corrick and Vince out there with the Oakland A's uh, do a nice job. The guys uh, uh, down in Texas, Eric, uh, love listening to him. And, you know, again, all these guys have been so nice to Andy and I throughout the uh, the years. I mean, Pat Hughes is a guy that I kind of hey, tell him this, but, you know, yeah, I did kind of grow up listening to him. I'll still check him out and listen to him on occasion. But uh, uh, honestly, for the most part, uh, when I'm in the car after a game, um, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a music guy. It allows me to come down from the game a little bit. Uh, I'll listen to our post-game show. I think Neil Solon's is as good as it gets when it comes to doing pregame and post-game shows right now. And then as soon as our show is done, uh, switch to some seventies and eighties. And a lot of times it's listening to a case of case and countdown to bring me back to those particular days and just kind of, uh, allow me that little 40 minute wind down that I get from the ride to the trap back to my home. So, uh, you know, I'll listen to guys, uh, still, uh, you know, they're all great guys, and they've been very, very good to Andy and I, but I'm more of a music guy a lot of times when I'm in the car. If somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would they go about doing so? Well, you can do uh, at dwills34, uh, at Dave, I should say at DaveWills34 on Twitter, at DaveWills34 on Twitter, and then uh, the easiest thing is to reach me on uh, email at dwills at raisebaseball or dwills at raisebaseball.com. All right, once again, we are talking with Dave Wills, the radio voice of the Tampa Bay Rays. And Dave, Saint, thanks so much for giving me a little bit of your time this morning. Yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate you having me, and uh, maybe we'll meet up someday in Minnesota. Look forward to meeting you. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice, And remember, Apple Podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show on social media so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.